This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares and with Laura from AJ Bell. Hi there. So this week we're talking about how you should know when to sell stocks, how the big gains in biotech shares are fading. Uh, we chat about Boohoo, Domino's Pizza and Best of the Best and we explain what negative interest rates actually mean for you. So firstly, let's check in on markets, Dan. So we were all positive last week on markets and then they fell. So I don't think it's directly related to us, but in particular, the biotech sector, which has obviously had a great run off the back of um, the coronavirus crisis and, and coming up with various vaccines and solutions to it. Um, that sector seen a dip. So, Dan, what's been happening? So, yeah, you, we had it was literally just over a week of falls. Um, it's all triggered by people worried about second wave of coronavirus infections and deaths. Um, so I, I just think this sort of new sense of fear sparked people to take profit in quite a lot of things that have bounced back uh, quite strongly from sort of the, the sell-off that we saw in February and March. Uh, it, to me, it's not not wasn't really a surprise as uh, the market seemed to be ignoring sort of the likely slump in earnings near term, and and they were just sort of getting just it was just too too much excitement in there. But but actually, you know. It, as always seems to happen, um, something was plucked out of the air and uh, the, the stocks are, are back moving upwards again. So here we've had the Federal Reserve has said it's, gonna, it's now started to buy corporate bonds, giving some support to the market. And there has been lots of chatter that um, the Trump administration are going to come up with a, a $1 trillion infrastructure investment programme. So we saw quite a lot of UK listed stocks jump off the back of this so uh, as well as sort of the the, the what the sort of the higher risk stuff that had been falling recently um so some some of the travel and leisure ones we saw companies that are in the construction industry that could potentially benefit if there's increased spending on sort of roads in the us and, and stuff like broadband infrastructure investments so uh, here investors were attracted to the likes of ashted to crh and ferguson's just three examples and so have there, in the kind of fallers, have we seen any particular trends as well? Well, yes. Yeah, so we talked about biotech sector in the introduction to the podcast. So you know, that's been one of the hottest areas of the market uh, pretty much for most of the year. Um, so that, that definitely has started to, to dip back um, actually before this sort of week of declines that we've just seen. Um, I did check in just before we started to record the podcast today and, and it is picking up again. So it suggests that um, investors who were uh, perhaps had made some profits, took some profits, and now they're getting, they want to get back in at a lower price potentially here. But I, I think with this sector in particular, lots of people have been attracted to companies that are either um, creating tests for coronavirus or, or one of the many companies trying to find sort of a solution to it um, so trying to create a vaccine and it's, it's a natural place that people have been attracted to but this also means that lots of people have just been chasing stocks no matter what they're doing really so I do think we might have a bit of a shift where people are a bit more um, fussy oh, that's probably the best way of saying about it fussy about which ones they want to back actually looking at companies that do 
probably going to be making a profit rather than just sort of uh, burning through cash trying to get a bit of a uh, either a sort of a greater position in, in this biotech sector. And I guess as those companies release news on how successful or not they've been in terms of finding solutions or developing research or drugs or all of those things, then investors will react to that. So I kind of feel like any bad news or slightly negative news or unexpected news that comes out of these companies, investors are going to react quite sharply in terms of selling out of them, aren't they? Yeah, they will. I mean, that's like I say, it's a lot. A lot of people have been chasing them, so I think it's if you do start to get um, sort of not not living up to expectations, yes, you know, there will be some disappointment because people at the moment are just um, certainly, well, certainly a lot of people are thinking that they are untouchable um, and it's a surefire way to make money. But you know, this this is how bubbles are created. People just chasing anything. So you know, do do be careful if you're looking at this space. Uh, remember, biotech is one of the highest risk areas of the stock market, um, and yeah, just be careful. But it's, also, it's probably also just worth pointing out that. Um, for the last two days, we've seen the market going up, but actually, there's there's plenty of reports of um, in Beijing shutting down parts of its um, air travel again, and and some of the schools shutting. So, a backdrop where a week ago people were nervous about um, the second wave of coronavirus, well, we are kind of seeing it. So, I'm just wondering why markets are sort of still suddenly returned to their sort of bullish nature again. So I, I, I think see this a bit early on in the crisis, though, where stuff was happening in China and investors seemed to think that that was kind of partly removed from, say, US and UK markets rather than really seeing it as a sign of what might be to come here. Do you no, think we're still seeing that delay? Well, yes, yeah, so we definitely saw that. You know, everyone seemed to you know, ignore what was going on in China in January. But it's for, for here, I think, I think what people want is they want an example of how a country has dealt with second wave. It's almost like you know, Beijing could be setting the standard for, for how quickly can they do lockdown again and ha- and sort of stop this virus from spreading. So um, I would have thought people being quite nervous watching it, but at the moment they're sort of not taking it. Um, perhaps as seriously they were a week ago, but you know, we've been living in some funny times and markets are sort of behaving very strangely. Um, and this is probably another another good example. Um, So obviously we talked last week about how um, lockdown was easing and shops were opening up and that that had had a kind of bit of a bounce for some retail stocks. Um, So have we seen any kind of company specific news, whether it's coronavirus related or otherwise this week? Yeah, I mean, there's there's actually several companies that caught my attention in sort of the last week. The first is a company which people may not be familiar with the company name but they might know what it does so the, the business is called best of the best it's a very small business that's um, traded on the aim market now if you, what, what it's done is reported um, very very strong earnings growth um, and then two days later said actually it, it, it's basically it's, it's success has uh, not gone unnoticed and, and it's actually had some indicative um Sort of interest from from companies potentially sniffing out. Do they want to take the business over? For so it's put itself up for sale. Um, so it, it, this year it's seen a three hundred and thirty percent share price gain. So if you don't, if you're not quite familiar with this business, it, it, cast your mind back, say, say four or five years ago. If you went to uh, the airport, you might have seen a car, a sports car, just sitting there in the sort of departures terminal, um, and people selling tickets. Do you want to try and win this car? So I'm sure, Laura, you must have. Do you remember those? Yeah, never won one. 
Probably because so I never is... bought a ticket. <laughs> so this is what they did. Actually, um, they've stopped doing airports and shopping malls, cars, competitions there. And they've, they've shifted it all online, but it's essentially the same thing. So I've seen it very recently on YouTube. They've been advertising very heavily, showing people winning cars. Um, and so it's... It's basically, it went through years of going through a you know, very difficult period. Shares were falling for a long time. And it just seems to have turned itself around. So I think when companies turn themselves around, um, can prove it's a positive recovery and show it in the earnings. This is, a, you know, people do sit up and, and sort of take notice. But um, this is a very illiquid stock, very difficult to buy and sell um, on the market freely. And I'm wondering, you know, is this as good as it can get for the business? Because if you think over over the last sort of three months, there's been no live sports. So I think people with a sort of a, a, um, a gambling nature have been wondering, you know, I normally bet on sports. Well, shall I do something else? Maybe I want to have a go on, uh, see if I can win myself a car and something like that. So I'm wondering whether this is a bit of a sweet spot. And you know, if it was to put itself up for sale now, the timing couldn't be any better. I don't know if you, Laura, do you remember the... Um, there's a business called Sportech that did the football pools very similar situation it was struggling for ages then it's things picking up put itself up for sale lots of investors got very excited and speculating over who might want to buy it six months later came out and said I'm sorry we actually failed to found to find someone who wanted to buy us so it's um, you know I'm not saying that the best of the best sale is not going to happen or you know, it, no, no one really knows but I'm just saying it just take um the situation uh look at it from a bigger context um of lo- long term you know if a gambling business wants to launch car competitions is that really hard to do on its own does it really need to buy a business i don't know this is um you know big question mark on it but this this is a this is a name stock so this is um a part of the market that people um either love or hate so aim, aim is the junior stock market so actually it, it's celebrating 25 years now this month um it's kind of a, it's meant to be a growth market same age as you dan yeah exactly yes well that's i'm, I'm laura's very pleased you remember that so <laughs> um, so it aim was sort of set out to be a, a market for growth companies and a platform for successful ones to then go and progress to the main market and you, you did have a spate when Companies like Domino's Pizza and Petra Diamonds were doing this. Uh, but you know, it, in recent years, I'd say it's probably it, it's cleaned up its act a little bit. By, by that, I mean it's a lot of the rubbish companies have just disappeared that are on the market. So by you know, just re- removing those, it sort of uh, naturally made it a little bit better. But it's still... It's still not a perfect place. I think perhaps a chat about the, the pros and cons of the AIM market is for another podcast. But, you know, if any of our listeners want to sort of drop us a line and give their thoughts on it, um, the email address is podcast at ajbell.co.uk. And when we, whenever we talk about AIM markets, people always trot out the big and famous examples of where people could have made loads of money. So um, ASOS, the clothes retailer, was on it, wasn't it? And Fever Tree as well. And people kind of trot out these ones where you could have made millions if you'd invested at the start. But um, for all those success stories, which are great, um, there are also the companies that kind of floundered and, and failed that, that listed on that market as well. Ah, oh, there are loads. There are loads of, you know, that were up to up, up to no good is probably the best way of describing. So um, they've either gone bust or, you know, 
they've been, they've been taken out at a very low price by someone who just wants to sort of strip the assets and stuff. But yes, it's, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that for another for another day. But actually, it's interesting, this week in terms of news flow, AIM's biggest company by market value is the clothing retailer Boohoo, which is now worth more than £5 billion. So um, it's it reported trading over lockdown, massive surge in sales. And it just surprised me, like, who on earth is buying what? Yeah, if you're stuck at home, you can't go out for a night on town. Why are you needing to buy new clothes? I wonder if it's just people are addicted to online shopping, just constantly feel they have to buy something else. I can see how online shops would benefit, obviously, during lockdown and that you can order from them where you couldn't order elsewhere. And obviously, being an online retailer, it's already got a slick process set up for deliveries rather than those retailers that might have more fledgling online businesses and maybe have struggled to expand them during lockdown. Um, But you're right. I think, I mean, I guess I've probably bought a couple of bits of clothes, predominantly loungewear, I would say, rather than anything fancy. (laughs) Um, But I can't see how you would need to buy loads more. The only area I can see where you might need to buy clothes, which you'll know better than I down, is children's clothes, because obviously they continue to grow and you need to buy new clothes because they actually grow out of them. But um, maybe that's it. Maybe people are uh, eating and snacking so much in lockdown, they've grown out of their clothes and need to buy bigger (laughs) ones. Yeah, I, I would. I did. You know, the shops have reopened this week, and I, and I was and I did see some comments on social media about people saying um, everyone that was queuing up for Primark it was predominantly parents doing exactly as you say. They they need new clothes for the kids that have grown shut up in this you know, the last three three months. But with Boohoo, I don't know. I mean, it, do you think it's that people are so bored at home they think I just need a bit of a parcel to be delivered tomorrow and then the next day? Because I I just I do think there is this. Um, a slight addiction to to online shopping when the price point is low with boohoo people perhaps are sort of shrugging shrugging it off and saying it's not really going to hurt me but if we're going to be facing a longer period of rising unemployment um you, know, you do wonder how someone particularly like boohoo is is sort of uh, got a younger target market might be affected yeah so have there been any other kind of beneficiaries uh, a bit like that a bit like the boohoo example of the lockdown well, yes, the Domino's Pizza is uh, is a natural one. I don't know if you if you can just cast your mind back to the start of lockdown. People were really worried about getting a slot for their online food deliveries and, and a bit nervous about going to the shops. Um, and so it, it it almost seemed natural to expect online food delivery companies of either platforms like Just Eat or or Domino's Pizza to be to be in demand. Because Domino's has now come out and said, yes, we've seen. Um, pick up in sales during lockdown but um, there is a big but here that it seems more, more people have been buying um, things like chicken wings and, and tubs of ice cream so the desserts and sides um, than simply buying pizzas and that's that's not good because you've got to think about its profit margins so if you if you've got um, essentially a bit of a bit of dough with uh, tomato sauce and a bit of cheese on top um, and you know you think that they're selling that for 20 quid just imagine what the profit margin is but if they're, if they're selling um, branded ice cream um, they're not going to be making as much money so they've, they've come out and said that you know I'm sorry our margin is going to be a bit less than you expected and, and costs are actually going up as well so so really you know the analysts have had to downgrade their forecast and Pro Domino's saw its share price fall 10% on this news when actually a lot of 
a lot of people would have thought that it's it was just going to be um, a natural lockdown winner. I think, I think as more like local, I don't know about your area, but around my area, more um, of the kind of independently owned and local restaurants and cafes have started opening up for takeaway and for delivery. And I think there is still that kind of community spirit of people wanting to support small local businesses, which means that um, Domino's could be... Uh, uh, partic- could kind of lose out on business to that because if your local pizzeria is opened then you might be more inclined to use that rather than kind of the big national chain of Domino's. Yeah absolutely I, th- I, th- I do think the branding has definitely got something to do with the initial surge in Domino's sales people trusting a name that they know will, you know they know what the quality is like they'll, they'll deliver but you know definitely right same my local area there's we've got a, a pizza restaurant around the corner and it's just reopened for sort of takeaway stuff and you just see on the sort of the local social media groups that people talking about um, wanting to support local businesses. And I think the lockdown period is, is shown that it's bringing communities together and that's naturally going to extend to supporting sort of the local businesses as well. So, yeah. And uh, so poor old Domino's, it's got a, it's got to sort out a, a long going spat with its franchisees who, who aren't very happy. It's overseas expansion has been a bit of a flop growing competition from, Obviously, places like Deliveroo helping rest, other restaurants to deliver stuff. Yeah, so a bit, a bit of a hard slog for that one, I'm afraid. So That's not your usual peppy tone. Well, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 I, think it was, I think it's a good example of um, where initially, if you looked at that company thinking it would have been, it would do really well, you would have been correct. And I think... Um, it shows that as companies are now reporting, you do have to take a very good look, delve into the detail of what they're saying. Don't just simply look at the highlights and um, you know, be prepared to sort of weigh up and change your mind about investments. Because um, if things aren't quite panning out, you know, you don't want to be sort of holding on for a long time. And actually, later on the podcast, we will be talking about what do you do uh, when with with a, either a stock that is losing your money or or, or something's changed. When do you get out? But we'll stick with us and we'll come to that subject in a minute. But but first, we've got the Bank of England making a decision on interest rates this week. Hasn't happened yet as we're recording. So, Laura, what are we expecting it to say? So the bank already cut rates twice in March. So right at the start of that lockdown period all those months ago, um, their initial reaction to the lockdown and to the economic problems and the stock market volatility was that they cut it. And so it's down to 0.1%. Um, so I think the decision this week, we're not expecting them to cut it again. Um, so, but I think the big caveat to that is that there's so much uncertain economic stuff out there in terms of how long lockdown goes on for, the impact on the economy, how long that impact lasts for. Um, so much of that is still uncertain that the Bank of England has come come out and said they're kind of they're considering all options. Um, and among those, it has not ruled out negative interest rates, which to lots of people will seem like a slightly mind-bending concept. Yeah, how will that work then? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Immediately you think people are going to Am I going to have to pay for people to look after my money? Um, So in theory, that is what it means if you took it literally. So it would mean that any savers who have money in the bank would technically be paying their bank to hold their money for them, um, 
which seems like something that people would be very unlikely to do. And I think the reality is that most people, when faced with that prospect, would just withdraw their cash and buy a safe and stick it in the safe or put it under their mattress or wherever, dig a hole in the garden and put it there. Um, so I think that it's actually unlikely. So if the Bank of England moves base rates, that obviously has an impact on the interest rate that you get on your savings, but also the interest that you pay on your debt. Um, and I think it's unlikely that banks would move to negative interest rates. But I think what we would see is that we would have further falls in the interest rates that we're being paid on our savings. So we're already seeing this, and we've talked about this a little bit before, where since the bank cut those rates in March and with people saving more money, um, you're now getting less and less on your savings. So the, the top level savings rates have come down and down during that time. And I think what you'll see more is a reduction in those um, in those market leading rates. And then the accounts at the moment that are paying you almost nothing will likely move to paying you nothing. So those kind of savings accounts that you've had for years and you keep forgetting to switch your money out of it and you might be earning 0.2% or 0.1% or maybe even half a percent if you're very lucky, um, those rates will likely drop to zero. Mm, yeah, it's not good, is it? So... It's not great. I mean, it's not great at the moment for savers anyway. And then it's even worse if rates go lower. Um, but on the flip side of that, obviously, interest rates also affect the, the rate that you pay on your debt. And so if we saw the Bank of England move to negative interest rates, then we would also see a fall in mortgage rates. Um, they're already pretty cheap at the moment if you compare them to historically. Um, and if you're on a fixed rate deal, obviously you would see no change because you've locked in that fixed rate. Um, but if you're on a tracker, you would see a cut because those rates, um, well, I should caveat that, you would likely see a cut because those rates track the, the Bank of England base rate. So as that comes down, your rates would come down. However, most mortgage companies are pretty savvy and they have introduced effectively like a floor to rates. So it's not like you're going to see your rate go negative where the mortgage company is paying you for borrowing, um, unfortunately. Uh, most have a floor where there's a, the lowest that rates can go. So, And that really depends on your provider as to what they've set that floor to. Um, so you'd have to see that. So rates probably would get cheaper um, if you're on a tracker or if you're taking out a new mortgage. Um, but sadly, they're not going to go negative, I don't think. Yeah. Is it, is it ever, has the Bank of England ever gone negative before? I don't recall it. I don't think so. Not that I can recall. Because I don't know. They, in fact, I don't think they have because I think at the moment um, the base rate no, is it, the lowest it's ever been. Yes. Of course, you're right. You're right. Yes. Uh, um, but it has happened in other countries and um, elsewhere. Obviously, Japan is like the, the much trotted out example. Um, you, and you can draw some parallels with what happened in different countries where they've gone to negative rates. But it's hard because you're talking about it in a specific set of circumstances and economic conditions. Um, so you can draw some parallels, but you can't really replicate what would exactly happen. While we're on interest rates as well, it's probably worth just a very quick mention of inflation figures as well, because that has an impact on savers too. So we had new figures out for May um, this week, um, and inflation fell again to half a percent, um, which is the lowest rate for four years. Uh, and it's interesting. So obviously, lower inflation is better for savers. So even if you're not getting much in terms of the interest, um, you're 
um, you're likely still going to be earning, if you're in one of those market leading accounts, you're going to be earning more interest than inflation is eating away at your money. So that's a bit of positive news for savers, um, that even though interest rates have fallen, so too is inflation. Um, but it's quite interesting. So uh, in May, petrol prices um were low again, so they fell again, which is interesting because oil prices actually rose in May, um, but that wasn't reflected in prices at the pumps purely because most forecourts are pretty empty um, because no one's really using their car that much. And so people are staying at home and so people just aren't buying as much petrol. So um, prices didn't go up. Um, the other thing that fell was the price of toys and games and things for hobbies. Um, so they'd actually increased in early lockdown um, as everyone rushed to buy stuff to entertain their children with and entertain themselves with. And it seems like some of that initial flurry has died out now and people aren't buying quite so much. So those prices have dropped as well. I did see some comment from you, Laura, today on a press release that talked about posh crisps um, as very key for inflation. So what is it? Have we all just been sitting at home eating um, fancy, fancy crisps. Then it sounds like a good life. <laughs> yeah, maybe I was just reflecting my own lockdown because cakes, chocolate sweets, and posh crisps have gone up slightly in price, which has pushed inflation up. And maybe that's just me buying them all. <laughs> but yeah, there's been increases in some food and drink prices, which I think most people probably expect um, because we're all still shopping at home. Um, rather than going out to eat. So we're kind of making three meals a day at home. Um, but the increases are in the most random things. So it is cakes, peanuts was another random thing that's in a price increase, um, orange juice. So there wasn't really a particular clear trend other than things that Laura would eat. <laughs> in the inflation figures as well, though, the um, Office for National Statistics talked about the fact that it's still struggling to get prices for lots of things. So if you think when it makes up this kind of imaginary basket of goods, it collects prices for lots of different things. But some of those industries are completely shut down. So hairdressers, for example, you can't gauge how much the price of a haircut has risen or fallen because no one's open to give you a haircut. Um, so they're now trying to create almost a COVID-19 basket of goods, which reflects what we're actually buying and what we're able to buy. Um so that they can get a better measure of inflation during the current crisis. But they say yeah. that's all quite experimental and we should, probably shouldn't entirely rely on those figures. It's probably worth mentioning that quite, well, not quite a lot, but some companies on the stock market, particularly in the utility sector, will link their dividend increases every year to the rate of inflation. So we have, um, as we're recording this, SSE just come out with its uh, latest figures. And it's a good example of um, sort of saying that the dividend increases by the, the RPI rate of inflation. So obviously, if inflation is low, that's not very good for income investors. It means you're going to get a very small increase um, with your dividends. But I guess in relative terms, getting an increase of dividends is probably quite good this year, considering how many have cut their dividends. And it's still increasing by inflation, I guess. So it's increasing by the amount prices are rising. But it's another bit of bad news for income investors. I feel like they can't catch a break at the moment. 
but with so much market volatility at the moment, it's difficult to know when to sell your investment. So you don't want to make a knee-jerk reaction and sell at a loss, but you also don't want to hold on for too long when a company's clearly not going to rebound. So Dan, you spoke to Brown Advisory Fund Manager Bertie Thompson about how he deals with losing trades and how he makes the decision to actually pull the trigger and sell the stock. So let's listen to that. Well, hi, Bertie. Thanks ever so much for joining us. So um, what we want to do today is chat a bit about selling an investment because i know that a lot of people find this very hard to do i was just wondering do, do you reckon someone should really have an idea when they should be selling at, at the point that they're buying the shares so sort of al almost like creating a list of scenarios such as if a stock hits this x valuation or if this event happens that's my trigger to sell yes um it's a great question, um, and thank you very much for, for, for having me. Uh, I mean, all the data says that um, investors, um, professional and uh, private investors, are much better at buying than they are um, at selling, um, typically because when you're buying um, an investment, you, you have time. You have time to wait for the right time to buy, and therefore the amount of mental energy that is assigned to buying a, a new investment in a company is typically bigger or more considerable uh, than when you sell. Um, and we'll probably talk about it in a second, but there's obviously a, a huge amount of emotion that is attached uh, to selling um, a, a position. Um, at the end of the day, human beings um, are, are really motivated by evolutionary forces. Uh, we're hardwired to survive at all costs. And typically when you're selling a position, you find it difficult because you are either crystallizing the pain of a losing position, which we find very, very difficult to do, or we are potentially uh, uh, depriving ourselves of further gain if you're selling a winner, um, the company that, whose share price is going up. So we do find it very, very hard to sell, and that's why most investors are not good um, at selling um, their investments in specific companies. I think every investor needs to have uh, a firm process uh, for selling uh, a company. Uh, they need to have a very, very clear idea of what they think the value of that company is and constantly ask themselves whether they're happy with the price that they're getting today for their um, appraisal of the value of any business. But on the, the, the other end of the, the, the spectrum, we also need to have a process for dealing uh, with when the investment case behind any investment changes. Essentially, when we feel that the reasons that we bought the company in the first place are no longer valid. Um, and that can be a lot harder to do. So I would encourage every investor, private and professional, to write down um, uh, their investment thesis, the reason that they like the company, what they expect the company to do from a cash flow perspective over their investment horizon, what they think the investment is worth, and to refer to that when they feel that the investment case might be changing. Yeah, so I, I think that's a, that is a hard one. So quite often when something uh, bad happens to a company, a lot of investors would perhaps just say, oh, it's a short-term issue. I'll just sit and wait for the company to, to sort of, uh, fix the problem. But how, how can they possibly tell whether you know, the investment case has truly changed or not without sort of a longer-term horizon to look at the evidence? Yeah, it's 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 a great question, and there are a number of different um, sort of issues wrapped up in the, in the question. 
you know, firstly, human beings have a propensity to uh, extend current trends into the future in a sort of linear, straight line fashion. Um, and typically that happens in moments of, of, of market stress. And that comes back to our survival instinct. And obviously, uh, in the beginning of this year with the COVID crisis in March and April, um, that was very much true. You know, it's very, very hard for investors to think long term when faced with, uh, you know, moments of stress like that that we had in the equity markets. And that typically means that our time horizons um, get shortened. They get shortened dramatically. So I would say um, it's incredibly important for every investor to think as long term as they possibly can. It's very, very hard to second guess what happens over the short term, but it's a lot easier um, to think about a company's uh, evolution over long time periods. And we really view um, markets, equity markets, as being inefficient over short time periods, but more efficient um, over longer time periods. The other um, really important point of dealing with losers is you need to have a process for dealing with them. Um, and really, that, that's very important to, to override the emotion uh, that comes with dealing with a loser, you know, it's kind of uh, all, all the um, emotional and behavioral analysis suggests that human beings feel pain at least twice as much as they do pleasure. So you need to have a process that helps you deal with the pain, the pain of a loser. Uh, and we have a process for doing that um, in our strategy, whereas if um, a company share price falls 20 percent below where we bought it or it underperforms by 20 percent over a rolling 12 month basis, uh, we have an automatic review of that position because the equity markets are either telling us something that the thesis might be changing or it could be a great opportunity to buy more of a good thing at a better price. So I think having a defined process with defined set of um, sort of trigger points that spur you into action and make you systematically and therefore unemotionally reappraise the investment thesis is incredibly important for every investor. So th th that's a bit like having um, a twenty percent stop loss. But I guess uh, if someone put a stop loss on their on, the, on their investment, that, then that's the trigger to sell. But actually, you're saying that's the should be the trigger to to reappraise and then consider selling. So um, I guess it's yeah. Yes, that, that that that's true. I mean, we wouldn't call it a stop loss of, of sorts because. At the end of the review process, you either have to buy more or you have to sell. You know, this could either be um, an issue um, that we view as being transient, essentially temporary, um, and that we're not going to worry about in five years' time. So that could be a, a fantastic opportunity to deploy more capital into a company where the return opportunity is actually increased because the, the equity price has gone down by a fifth, by, by 20%. So those can be fantastic opportunities. But the converse is um, also, you know, worth e examining, which is that the investment thesis might well have changed. You know, the reason that you bought this company to start with has changed. And normally when we sell on that 20 percent drawdown, it's when we see a supply side um, disruption. So that essentially is when we see a competitor trying to enter our company's marketplace and they try they're trying to um eat our competitors lunch so to speak because our companies are doing something very special for their customers and generating lots of uh, cash flow our human nature dictates another company want to try and enter that company's marketplace when we see that um it, it, that is a red flag for us so typically when we sell on this 20 percent drawdown rule it's when we see a competitive disruption a supply side disruption 
so do we speak. And for us, the way that we invest, which is with a quality focus, very long term orientated and really focus on compounding of cash flows over time, that for us is the biggest red flag given our investment approach. So I'd say, you know, that for us is a framework that, that has stood us in good stead. We measure um, all of these episodes and we have done since we started uh, investing globally. Uh, and, you know, we're pleased to say that more often than not, when we've had um, a drawdown and we've bought, that has been the right decision. And more importantly, more often than not, when we've had a drawdown and when we've sold, which is mentioned normally is when we feel a permanent change to the supply side to the competitive position, that has been the right decision as well. So not only should you have a good process for dealing with losers, you should also continually measure whether that process actually adds value and whether you've got what we call a hit rate, whether your hit rate on those decision, decisions that you've made um, is above 50%. Because if it's not, you have to question uh, whether you should have the process in the first place. And I think that's really important. You know, processes really are there to serve investors and you need to continually appraise them. Yeah. So, what, so how, how does it work um, at Brown Advisory? Are, are you sort of sitting around as a team discussing um, what's gone well and also what's not gone well? Or, or are you, you sort of draw upon sort of third parties who might be able to talk through um, who perhaps don't have, you know, they're not biased in terms of the, their views of stuff? Um, yeah, there's a, you know, the way that we work is we, we have two processes. The first is the investment selection process, which is with the investment team, including analysts. And um, then we also have a capital allocation process, which is Mick, uh, Dylan, the other portfolio manager and myself. And, you know, the point of departure really for that is to make sure that we have the most amount of our clients and AV and the companies that we feel have the best return potential over five years. Uh, but specifically for dealing with uh, the losers, um, you know, that process is part of the investment selection process. We go through the losing positions when they're triggered in the drawdown process with the whole investment team. So Mick, myself and um, the, uh, the other analysts in our working group. And we go through the investment thesis. We ask ourselves, is it still valid? One member of the team's job is to be a devil's advocate. So their job is to take the other side. And the reason that's important is to make sure that we're being as objective as we possibly can at all, at all points. It's very, very easy um, if you're uh, an analyst who's been covering a company for many years to be biased and not, not to be objective. So we think that's really important. And at the end of that whole process, we as a team collectively make the decision whether we're going to buy more or we're going to sell. It's really Mick and my own job to, to make that decision, but we solicit the opinion of the team so it's a very methodical process and the great thing about it is is that by having a process for dealing with losers it takes the emotion out of losers because at the end of the day losers are a part of investment life every investor private or professional is going to have a loser no one in this industry has a hundred percent hit rate we often joke that if you have a hundred percent hit rate so everything you buy is an outperformer you should be in jail because no one has that. It's just not possible the way that the markets work. So if you start from that that framework, you realize that losers are in part investment life. It's, life. it's not that you won't have them. It's how do you deal with them in a way that you can either reduce the loss when you feel the thesis has changed or you can capitalize on a moment of inefficiency and the ability to buy more of a good thing um, at a better price. Um, the other part of your question, which, which has been incredibly powerful for us, 
is that we recognize that human beings are um, you know, inherently disadvantaged for this activity. As mentioned earlier, uh, we have a number of behaviors within us which are given to us through evolution. Um, you know, we often joke as well internally that we're doing a 400 year old job with a 2 million year old brain. We are hardwired to survive at all costs and also we're hardwired to reproduce as well. These are the two sort of driving human, uh, human um, objectives. So we, we recognize that, that we have these inbuilt um, biases that are given to us by evolution that are helpful for surviving when you're living in a cave or in the savannah um, um, back in evolutionary times, but they're not helpful today when we're allocating your client's capital. So we work with a team of third party consultants. They analyze all of our behaviors, what we do do, and also what we think about. We can again talk about that if you're interested. And we use them to help us develop these rules, such as the drawdown review rule. But also we view them as investment coaches. We really think that um, investors can actually get better with the right mindset, the right feedback, um, and uh, you know the right uh, amount of data. And that's where we measure everything. And it mystifies us to this day that most investment managers are arrogant enough to think that they can't get better. We totally disagree with that. We actually think we can improve. And in many other professional in endeavors, you'll have a coach, whether you're a sportsman, uh, you're, a, you're a professional athlete, uh, or you're you know, a concert pianist, you'll have a coach. Yet most investors or professional investors don't have a coach. We think a coach is very, very important. And with the right feedback, you can actually get better and make better decisions. That's quite. It's quite interesting because I, I I can't say I've come across this before with anyone. Um, or certainly doesn't sort of a, a sort of talking about it publicly that they do this. Have you have you used these, um, you know, the 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 coach uh, approach for for quite a number of years, or is this something that you've just done quite recently? No, we've been working with them uh, almost since the launch of Global Leaders uh, five years ago. Um, and it's been incredibly um, powerful for us. I think it's been helpful for us to have a, a third party do it. We, we looked at uh, building the capability internally. Um, so everyone at Brown Advisory, the whole equity research team and the investment teams are, are big believers um, in behavioral finance and understanding the psychology of investment. So we looked at building this capability internally, looking at our actions and also our thoughts as well and trying to join the dots together. But the reality is if you have a third party performing this analysis, it's even more powerful. It's like going to the doctor and getting um, you know, some advice um, from the doctor. You're paying this person, you have an arm's length relationship with them. It's very, very objective. Um, and if we had built this up internally, we, we could have done it from a quantitative perspective. But if we had done it internally, um, you know, typically it would have been the head of research or the head of the institutional business who would have been uh, doing the analysis on us. And we would, we would inherently be making uh, um, excuses um, to them about um, you know, some of our behaviours and they would be giving us probably a free pass in some areas where actually having an objective third party to do it has been very, very powerful um, as well. And it really is about mindset, this. It's about a learning mindset. It's about thinking about how you can improve uh, as an investor. Uh, and that's why, you know, we really think in many different levels that ego in investment is incredibly dangerous. Uh, and we think humility is a totally underrated quality that every good investor needs to have. They need to realize that they can learn from their mistakes and they can actually get better 
um, over time. And you need to have that mindset because when you do have um, our, well, when we do have our quarterly meetings uh, with the coaches, it is humiliating. You know, we, we call it our uh, re- reverse therapy session, so to speak. Um, but only if you can go through that process and learn and think about how you can improve will you actually improve uh, as an investor. So um, you're absolutely right. It, it really does take the right mindset and the right level of humility uh, to be able to get better as an investor. Um, and you can probably guess from, from the sort of the tone of this conversation, uh, you know, we have absolutely no qualms about, you know, discussing this with, with, with anyone. Um, and it, it really comes from a place where we're focusing on delivering investment excellence. For uh, You know, they should expect us to continually improve and ask ourselves how we can get better um, at every step of the way. Uh, and that's why, you know, we think it is so important. So finally, could we just talk about some of your losing trades? So when you looked back um, at what happened, did you find it was because of reasons such as increased competition for the company in which you invested? Or is it actually that you, you missed something when you were originally looking at the company and before you actually first bought those shares? Yeah, it's interesting that um, this comes back to another sort of uh, sort of human bias or behavioral bias called called outcome bias you you get a certain outcome and you you that kind of that that drives your recollections of, of, the, of that of that event and the, the chain of events and you know if you don't document all of your actions it's very very easy for the mind to uh you know play tricks on you and, and kind of like revise history uh, after the fact so we document everything that we we, we possibly can um and it's very, very hard sometimes to attribute specifically how much has come from the different factors. I think it's very, very clear when you've got a competitive disruption, the moats around a business get get eroded, um, and that will impact the rest of the economic picture, which is the return on capital, the cash flow that's generated, the growth and the fade of the business. Um, so you, you can quantify that. Um, but sometimes, you know, you have things like a change in a management team where a new management team comes in, you had a fantastic capital allocator who'd been at the business for, in the business for 15 or even 20 years. They have a change of management team and you suddenly have a, a new CEO in who wants to commit essentially financial vandalism with, with, with the company's uh, cash flow and return profile. And, and that can be just bad luck. So there are many different reasons why you sell. You know, the clearest one for us, the, as mentioned, is um, around the competitive disruption. That's that's the real torpedo for us where we feel the economic moats have been compromised because, as mentioned, that, that changes the whole investment case, the thesis, and also the economic picture. But the other thing that we do do, and it's quite a good question because we were actually uh, doing one yesterday afternoon, is we do do after-action reviews. And I think this is also important for every investor to do, which is when you sell a losing position, you wait some time and then you objectively with your team, you go through the different chain of events that led you to buy the investment, uh, led you to buy more or to sell at different points in time, and then do an after action review with the team where we in the cold light of day look at why we bought the company to start with, what happened along the way, were there any red flags that we could have picked up during that process did we add capital at the right time? Did we take capital away at the right, right time? And most importantly, can we learn about anything from this from this episode? And again, that, that's really important because it makes us think about how we can get better. It makes us think about the investment case that went wrong. 
And it also comes back to, you know, continually wanting to improve. So even though they can be difficult in hindsight, uh, you know, the, the after action reviews are incredibly powerful. Um, and I would encourage, you know, every investor to do them. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's something that we feel is an incredibly powerful and good discipline. But it all comes from this belief that we have that we can continually improve and we can learn from negative outcomes when we make investments and, we, and they don't succeed for us. Great. Well, Bertie, thank you ever so much. It's really fascinating hearing your thoughts. So uh, thanks a lot for joining us today. Not at all. Thank you very much for having me on. And so one final thing before we go this week, I wanted to clarify something we talked about last week with investment trusts, as I don't think that we were that clear in a bid to kind of simplify it and make it easy. Um, I think that we weren't super clear. So we talked about the fact that investment trusts can put up to 15% of their income each year into what's called revenue reserves. And so that means that they can bolster income in future years um, when income coming in might be a bit leaner. But I don't think we were that clear about how that money is held. So it's not just held in cash in a pot that sits there on the side for the fund manager to dip into. It's actually money that then gets reinvested back along with other assets in the fund. So in order to, for the fund manager to be able to use that money to pay out and bolster income, it would need to sell some assets of the trusts. So the, the point that we were making around the benefits over open-ended funds are still there in terms of smoothing out income, but it's not like cash or a little piggy bank sitting there that the fund manager can raid when they want to. So thanks a lot for listening this week. Um, please do leave a review of the podcast where you listen. It really does help us and it helps for uh, ever listeners as well. And please do your, tell your friends and family about what a great podcast this is. So thank you very much and we'll see you next time. See you next week. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.